Mac Power Users, episode 266. Mac Power Users Live for the 4th of July, 2015. Welcome back to the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. A very happy 4th of July to you, David. Thank you, Katie. What are you doing today for, for July 4? Uh, I'm watching it rain. I'm, I'm supposed to go out to the lake for a, a cookout with some friends and family in a couple of hours after the show ends. And so we'll see. It's uh, it's pouring down rain, thunder, and, and lightning right now. So hopefully that's good and it'll pass and, and we'll be able to go out to the lake. Uh, people want to know, are, are you cooking up some, some bratwurst? Um, I am cooking bratwurst tomorrow. We've got some friends coming over tomorrow, but uh, today we're doing family and we are doing stuff in the house. We're cooking indoors today. So I will be on the barbecue this weekend, but not officially on July 4. Okay. But uh, the weather's great here. It's hot and dry and no water. But other than that, it's just fantastic. (laughs) Anyway, uh, happy 4th. And, uh, you know, nothing better than spending the holidays talking to my friend Katie Floyd about nerdy things. So why don't we just get started with this? Oh, wait, we have an announcement, don't we? Yeah, we we do have one announcement, uh, and that is because of uh, vacation schedules, um, I will actually be in the bottom of a really big hole uh, on the first Saturday of the month next Next month, um, I'm, I'm going to the Grand Canyon. We're going, actually going to be rafting down in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So I will actually be in the bottom of a really big hole. So as a result, we're going to have to record Mac Power Users Live one week early next uh, month. So we're actually going to record Mac Power Users Live uh, on July 25th next next month or for well this month but for next month so uh just mark your calendars we'll get the relay calendar updated soon uh but just mark that uh july 25th 10 a.m pacific 1 p.m eastern will be the next mpu live uh and because it's the holiday, uh, we, we don't have a guest. So we figured, uh, we I guess we'll declare our independence from, from MPU guests. That's a bad thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. But we've got some great ones lined up in the future. But for today, I thought we'd just kind of add some additional listener questions. And there's plenty to cover here. So you want to get started? Oh, yeah. We we put out a call for listener questions and uh, you all did not disappoint. So this is kind of a grab bag of questions with with all kinds of different topics for you. So here here we go. Um, the first question is, is for you, David. Andrew wrote in and said a couple of shows ago, you mentioned that you were interested in trying mail tags again. How did that experiment go? Yeah, it, it's gone well, Andrew. And just to kind of explain the problem a little bit, I went out on my own and started my own law practice. And uh, so I'm managing emails on litigation and kind of client matters. And I wanted to have a way to easily file them all. What I've always done, and I've talked about this on the show, is with critical emails, you know, when someone sends me something that could be evidence someday or something like that, I print them to PDF. And I have a, a very quick way to do that. I, I talked about this on my website a couple of years ago, and it's a very popular post where I hold down the command key and press P twice. And, and it's, it's a keyboard shortcut for print to PDF. So using that combined with a, a, um, a text expander snippet that names the file, I'm very, I'm very quickly able to save an email as a PDF. But I wanted to have a way to keep everything related to a certain matter, you know, easily indexable and follow, uh, easy to follow. Um, I started down this rabbit hole when we did the Devon Think show because I got thinking, you know, it would be nice if I could have Devon Think just automatically file all that email for me so I'd have... Uh, you know, one database for it, but I haven't had a lot of luck getting Devon Think to do that reliably yet. Um, 
the um the other thing I've done is gone over to mail tags. And so so mail tags is an application that attaches to mail and allows you to go ahead and and put tags attached to a specific email and you can, when you're doing it, you can, uh, you can, you know, use something like in my case uh, with a legal practice, a specific matter. And so I've been using that and I've done it with the project tags and I've, I've been doing it now for about a month and I'm very happy with it. It's very easy and fast to apply. I'm still doing the print to, to PDF thing for key emails and then doing everything else in mail tags. And for me, the next big step is now to connect that with Dev and Think because these uh, tags and mail tags, I believe, are going to make it a lot easier for Dev and Think to do its job. Um, so it's working out well. That's a long answer to a short question. Um, I think I'm going to continue using it and continue automating it. Like one of the nice things you can do having mail tagged these projects is I can create smart folders in mail, Apple mail, where I can have it combine all of them and very easily see them together if I want without having to manually sort and file them, which is the one thing I'm really against. And, uh, one downside to all this is I can't apply the tags in iOS. So, um, that part of the process has to happen on a Mac. So that's where it's going. So, so far, uh, the experiment's going well. I'm still kind of refining it. I'll probably talk about it. We're going to do a show on me going out and starting a small business uh, sometime later this summer, probably. And I'm going to talk about some of the workflows I've developed in the in the process. We also got a question from Keith, who wants to know if Apple could make it possible for users to point Time Machine backup uh, to the cloud. And I've seen a couple of products that will say that they'll do this. Several years ago at Macworld, Dolly Drive, I think, was a product who first came out with this, and they actually branded themselves as Time Machine in the Cloud. Uh, I think they got in trouble for that because I know that they don't do it anymore. And I went to their website and I couldn't find that service. So I don't know if they still do. Uh, there's a product called iBackup that says they'll back up your, your time machine to the cloud. But I was never convinced if that was really a good idea because of the way that time machine backups up your files. You know, it's kind of the first time you do it. They back up all of your files and then they do the these incremental backups. Candidly, it's not the most efficient way to do backups. And I've never really thought that worked well for a cloud service because it's not it's not the speediest thing to do, even if you use it on a time capsule or a network attached drive. I'm not real sure it would translate well over to cloud storage. Yeah, you know, I've always felt like, you know, when Dolly Drive first came out and there have been other uh, vendors over the years saying that they wanted to do something like that. Um, I, I'm just not sure that I want that I, I, for me, a cloud backup is much better as kind of like a mirror of my data. And that's what I'm getting, you know, with the current, you know, uh, cl cloud based backup systems, um, getting incremental versions of the files. I'm, I'm not sure I need that in the cloud. And like, and for all the reasons Katie just stated, I'm a little concerned about bandwidth caps and some of the other issues that would come with that constant update. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, Apple does have the time capsule product. So although it's technically not to a cloud, it is to uh, a network attached storage device. So you don't have to have something sitting right there connected to your computer. And many of the cloud-based storage solutions will allow you to selectively restore files to a certain period of time. So for example, I use Backblaze and I know that I can restore a Backblaze file. And I'm not sure how far back, honestly, the Backblaze a catalog goes. I know it's at least 30 days and it may be farther. It's, it's, it's just never been an issue for me, but you can go back to a date specific 
and and restore a file from that specific date. Yeah. Um, that being said, are you still doing both? I mean, are you are you using a time? I'm doing uh, everything. Yeah. So you're doing a time machine as well as a or time capsule as well as a cloud based backup. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing time machine to my Drobo um, because Drobo has the ability to duplicate the functionality of a time capsule. And I've actually found it's been faster than Apple's time capsule. So I'm doing that. And then I'm doing a clone backup to a, a local hard drive that I have sitting here on my desk. And then I'm doing a backblaze backup. And they all have different uses. You know, clone is great if you need to uh, restore immediately and you need to have quick access. Offsite is is obviously good because you need um, to have something that's not physically here in, in case of a catastrophe or if you need to restore when you're not at when you're not at home. And then the time machine backup is nice because, you know, what if I just need to grab a quick file because I accidentally deleted something two days ago? You know, grabbing it off the time machine is usually the quickest way to do that. How often do you find yourself doing that, though? Not often, but often enough that, you know, a couple of times a year that I have it. It's on my Drobo and it's, you know, I have so much space on the Drobo that it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, on your advice, I switched over. So our whole family now is backing up to the Drobo. Our time machine is, um, our time capsule is pretty long in the tooth. So uh, I thought, well, you know, and it was pretty small. So I went ahead and put everybody on the Drobo and we've had no problems with that. And for me, with the family members, it's good because that's the, the level one backup for them. Uh, I do go through and mirror their drives onto an external drive, but I haven't purchased a, a Backblaze account for every single person. Um, and, uh, you know, there's actually, and I don't want to go into it at length here, but when you've got a family, there's there's some interesting angles to the whole backup strategy. Because we talk often like, well, how do you back up your computer? But what if you're responsible for four computers or four different, you know, people in their accounts? And, you know, if something goes wrong, they're going to be coming for me with the, you know, sharp knives. So it's an interesting angle. But maybe we'll save that for another day. Uh, we also got a question from Robert about cloud photo storage. He says, do either of you use Amazon Cloud Drive or another cloud storage to back up your photos? Yeah, I, I use everything because I've okay. got an Amazon account. I went ahead and, you know, I, I talked we talked in the photos show about how we do kind of a, a hard backup where we export all the photos to um, nested directories. Um, I went ahead and put those in Amazon. And then uh, because I wrote a book on photos, I or actually did a video product on photos, I wanted to kind of be up on things. So I went ahead and and put my stuff in the Google Cloud, which I know some people are freaking out when they hear that. But I just wanted to see how it all worked. And uh, I'm playing with that right now. Um, I think we kind of talked about the pluses and minuses between those various services. But for now, at least partly because I'm a nerd and I do a podcast, but also just out of curiosity, I've, I've tried both of those services. I we had a listener on the last episode of Mac Power Users Live last month talk about Flickr and because we talked about Amazon we talked about Google but we never talked about Flickr and you know Flickr now will give you one terabyte of free photo storage and there's a great little helper app it's actually a menu bar app called the Flickr Photo Uploader and I downloaded it. it's a free download and you can point that Flickr Photo Uploader at any folder you want and it's been updated so you can even point it at your photos library directory and it will sit in your menu bar and uh, as soon as long as it's running you can set it to turn on um, at login 
and it will upload to Flickr privately by default. You can make it public if you want, but it's private by default. Um, All of the photos that it sees in that particular folder, or in my case, I've pointed it at my, my iPhoto, I'm sorry, my photos directory. And that's been working like a charm for me. And I just, I've said it, I've forget, forgotten about it. It took a couple of days for that initial upload of all the photos from my photo directory to get up there. And now it's just doing the changes that have occurred. You know, every, as I add new photos, it's uploading those. And that happens very quickly because typically only a handful of photos every week or so. And that's great. I've got a, I've got a Mac mini that I have running almost 24 seven. I know David, you've got an iMac that's running pretty regularly. And so it just sits up in the menu bar. It doesn't take many resources and it runs and it does its thing. And at some point I'll probably run into that one terabyte limit. But for me, that's still a long way off. And I just don't even think about it, but my photos are now backed up to Flickr and I'm probably going to go set up Flickr accounts for the family members whose machines that I'm in charge of backing up and set that to back up their photos as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. And and I think that one terabyte limit is not a problem for most people, unless you're shooting raw and you shoot a lot. I mean, even with, we've got something like over 10 years of photos with all this digital photography and we're not even, we're not even close to a terabyte with all the, the photos we've got. So that's a great idea, especially for family members, because, you know, the pictures is the big deal you lose the pictures you're you're in trouble uh we heard from mike and he was talking about sonos for podcasts he says do you listen to podcasts on your sonos and if if so how and then he even answered how he does it he uses the iphone to the apple tv to the play bar line in Uh, but he says his drops out a lot well i do a similar thing i have an airport express that is attached to a, a sonos i guess it's the five i believe they call it it's the kind of the larger speaker but it has a line in on it. So um, I just use the airport express and I, I've actually named the airport express Sonos because that's so everybody in the house well, knows what they're can, plugging can, into. Can you back up a bit? And t- Cause yeah. I think people who don't understand the so- or how Sonos works, don't understand the problem that you're solving is because by default, you, you can't just listen to podcasts that you're, you have, let's say an overcast or in the Apple podcast app on your Sonos, right? That's yeah, exactly. the problem. Exactly. I mean, you, you can't, um, yes, it has to have be supported by an application in essence, or the, the Sonos app itself has to be able to find it. And it doesn't look in overcast to find podcasts. It just doesn't, it looks in the Apple music app and looks in various places, but it doesn't look there. So the way you do it is kind of a hack. So your, your phone, your iOS devices, whether it's a, a phone or an iPad can play out to an external device through the airplay feature. And the AirPlay feature is just this great thing that Apple's built into the Apple TV and the Airport Express that can basically accept an audio signal from any iOS device. And those devices also have an audio out. So you use AirPlay from your your iPhone or your iPad to get into those devices, and then they send the audio signal out. And there are certain Sonos devices like the Play Bar that Mike's using and the Sonos 5 that I'm using that will accept that input. So in essence, by changing the input on the Sonos to that that Apple device, you can AirPlay directly to them. Now, what uh, Mike was having trouble with was it dropping out. And I have not experienced that. I don't know if it's because I'm using an Airport Express instead of an Apple TV, or maybe it's the Wi-Fi conditions of my house. I mean, Sonos creates its own network in essence, or maybe just the the nearness of the 
the airport express to the base station for whatever reason it plays fine uh that being said i also don't do it very often usually when i listen to music through my sonos uh, or when i listen to audio through my sonos it's music uh usually when i listen to podcasts i've got uh, uh, headphones in my ears and i'm walking around because my family really doesn't want to listen to my podcasts so that that hurts me yeah they listen to our podcast right not at all not at all not at all (laughs) I think I think you should just start blasting it through your house. Set all the speakers and just start blasting it. Um, uh, in the chat, you know, live follow up. Peter says Sonos can play from the podcast app, but the files have to be downloaded. So that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. I mean, it's funny how the Apple apps continue to improve in the background. Yeah, he he may be talking about though. Does Sonos have a podcast app? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think it. I think it goes to the Apple podcast app. Okay. All right. We'll check that out. Uh, question from Kevin who says, I use a scan snap for recording my receipts, but what are your workflows or recommendations when traveling? Perhaps an iPhone app to a Dropbox. And I guess it depends on where ultimately do you, what is the end point for those receipts? And I think David and I will have different answers to these questions because the, the end point for our receipts are different places. I tend to keep all of the receipts that I keep for tax purposes in Evernote. David, I know, does not. But I, I have a, a folder in Evernote or a notebook in Evernote that I call Tax Receipts 2015. And next year, I'll have a folder called Tax Receipts 2016. And I keep all of those receipts in there. My workflow has changed over the years. I've tended to use uh, various scanning apps on the iPhone. Uh, my current favorite is PDF Pen Scan Plus. But I will say that the Evernote application itself has gotten very good uh, in terms of being able to scan documents directly into Evernote. I still tend to like to use a third-party app because my personal preference is I like to have the receipt as a PDF rather than as a JPEG built into Evernote. So I typically will still scan the receipt or scan whatever document I have with a third-party app. Um, some people like Scanner Pro. Some people like, um, I think, Jot is another one. But anyway, there's tons of them. Um, and then send that off to uh, to Evernote. Yeah, I'm I'm still following the workflow I talked about a few years ago with this. I use a scanning app on my phone. And um, I use Scan Plus from PDF Pen, but they, you know, they're like you said uh, in the chat room. Someone mentioned Scanner Pro. I know ScanBot's another one, uh, but you want to use that's one, what I was thinking. Yeah, of. Uh, and, but you want to use one that does OCR, uh, and especially if you're you know on the Hazel bandwagon with us, because it's really great feeling to know that you know it will. If you OCR on your device, it takes care of so many problems. I I was at Kaiser recently getting, you know, some medical stuff dealt with, and I had a receipt from Kaiser and I shot it with PDF pen scan plus it saved it to my action folder in Dropbox. My iMac at home was watching that folder. Now I didn't do anything else. I didn't do anything to name the file. All I did was took a picture of it, OCR it and saved it to Dropbox at home. My computer saw that it said Kaiser invoice It had the magic words that I had told Hazel to look for to tell it's a Kaiser invoice. It gave it the current date. It um, tagged it. It saved a copy to my medical file for taxes and saved another copy to the medical folder where I keep all the medical bills and and got it out of my action folder. And it was really great seeing that happen while I was sitting in the waiting room at Kaiser, you know, 30 miles from my house. So I find that 
you know, really great. Uh, whichever app you want to use, uh, PDF Pin, full disclosure, is a longtime sponsor, and they're friends of ours. But um, the uh, get an app that does OCR, because if you set it up with the Hazel, it just feels like magic when you just take a picture of it, and it just disappears like that. Okay, um, do you want to take a, uh, a, a quick break to talk about our first sponsor? Yeah, because I think uh, these next couple of questions we've got are, are going to require some some lengthier <laughs> answers. So we've got a new sponsor to Mac Power users this week. I am very pleased to welcome our good friend, Don McAllister and Screencasts Online, uh, sponsoring this episode of Mac Power users. So for over 10 years, uh, Screencasts Online has been creating amazing video tutorials to help us get the most out of our Apple products. And I think that I have been a subscriber to Screencasts Online for all of those. Don just has an incredibly unique way of guiding us through and providing us with tips and tricks on OS X, on iOS, on the Apple Watch, uh, on all kinds of software like pages, numbers, keynotes, photos, and iMovie. But he also includes third-party apps, including a lot of apps that we've talked about here on the show, like 1Password, Pixelmator, OmniFocus, ScreenFlow. And I really believe that if you're a Mac Power Users listener and you've heard about some of these applications that we've talked about on our show and you want to dig deeper and you want to learn more, uh, there is no better compliment to our show than Don's screencasts online to help you get the most out of some of these products. Now, Don produces not one, but two shows every week. Uh, he is incredibly responsive in getting these shows out and making sure that they are up to date. Uh, typically, his Mac show runs about 30 minutes. His iOS show runs about 15 minutes. And when he needs to, he'll do multi, multiple multi-part shows. But one of the most amazing things is that if you become a Screencast Online subscriber, you not only get all of the content that he's producing for you every week, but you get access to his incredible back catalog. So there are now hundreds and hundreds of Screencasts Online's episodes that you can go back and reference. So if you want to learn more about Hazel, maybe he hasn't done a show on it recently, but he's done one on it within the last year or so, and you can go back and grab it out of the back catalog and get that. Don's archive now has over 700 videos, which you will have immediate access to. And I've got to say, Don McAllister just has an amazing way of breaking this all down and simplifying it uh, and making it incredibly simple. You will learn more in 30 minutes with Don McAllister than you probably will all week except maybe for when you're listening to Mac Power users. So here's how it works. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial with no obligations for Screencast Online memberships by visiting screencastonline.com. You can get a three-month membership for just $27, or you can get a whole year for only $97. But if you use coupon code MPU2015, you'll get a 25% discount off your first membership period. So that means you can get a full 12 months for only $72. So head on over to screencastonline.com, use coupon code MPU2015, and let Don know that we sent you. So thanks to Screencast Online for their continued support of Mac Power users. You know, that that Liverpool accent that Don has, it, when you watch one of his shows, it just feels like wrapping yourself in a warm blanket. I can't explain it. Okay. Um, let's talk about Bill. He wrote in about keeping machines in sync. And he said that you mentioned in 261 that you use your small MacBook as a travel Mac. And uh, by the way, it served me really well on my recent vacation. Um, how do you keep and treat that in your main machine in sync and the idea of traveling MacBook and his main laptop, which is a heavyweight tool for statistics and Adobe photographs or photographer package is appealing, but he could see how he couldn't keep them automatically in sync. Um, 
you know, we've done shows on synchronization in the past, but I really um, think it's a lot easier now than it was probably when we even recorded those shows. The The cloud services have come a long way in the last few years. Uh, Dropbox was really the leader in this space. Uh, they were the first service, in my opinion, that made it really easy to put something in cloud storage and have it automatically show up on other machines. Um, but, you know, iCloud is pretty solid now as well. And I know I'm going to get email for that. Um, there's also uh, products like the Transporter, where you can s- save it to a local drive in your home or office and then have that available to you in the cloud. So so the way I do it, Bill, it really isn't that hard when I'm traveling. You know, I guess and I guess it depends on what you do. So like when I travel, the kind of work I do is mainly like OmniFocus, email, a lot of Microsoft Word and Apple Pages documents and spreadsheets out of Excel and numbers and uh, you know, kind of the typical work product stuff. And for those, I store them in various places that give me cloud storage. I mean, everybody's in the game now. iCloud can automatically sync documents out of pages. Microsoft has a cloud syncing service. But if you don't like either of those, you can just use something like Dropbox and store it there and you can have access to everything. Uh, do be careful about not leaving a bunch of stuff on your computer at home before you leave. I mean, like if you have a pages document or a Word document, you want to close that out before you, you leave and start working on it on a different machine. But in general, it's just really not that hard anymore. Um, where are the pain points in syncing in 2015, Katie, in your opinion? Well, it's we, we don't have everything. The pain points are really that we don't have everything in one place. I've got some stuff in Dropbox. I've got some stuff in iCloud. I've got some stuff in Transporter. And then I've got some stuff in the Omni system uh, using OmniPresence and OmniSync service. And, you know, when I when I did my recent Nuke and Pave, uh, because I, I had my computer uh, got sent into Apple and I've got a brand new logic board now, so at least that's not my problem anymore. But it it seems that as I was doing that restore, it was okay. Well, I I just uh, I just installed Dropbox, so I've got so much of my documents. And then it was all right. Well, now I've I've just installed. You know, you get iCloud right off the bat, and oh well, now I just installed my transporter. Now I've got this other subset of documents. But you know, it's always I don't quite have everything yet. And then there's still some stuff that is that is outside of the sink. But it's it's getting a lot better. One thing I was going to ask you though is have you found that your habits in terms of where you save files changed at all now that you are running, I guess you have for a while, but when you started running a multi-computer setup as opposed to having really a single computer as your main machine, did you find that your habits changed at all in terms of where you saved files? Um, It took some mindfulness in setting it up, making sure that I kind of had things in a place where they could sync. And and because some of it's... um, client confidential stuff it's actually that stuff is more difficult because you have to control it a little bit more you know there's certain rules you have to follow um but once i set it up it's 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 just done i mean it's like so much on a computer if you spend a little time at the beginning setting these things up uh, in the future it'll save you a lot of time uh one trick and i I think to follow up on your point about the complications is i think you're right um this isn't that difficult for me because i'm a nerd and a lot of people listening to our show are nerds and they're not going to have trouble but if I were to go to my wife and say, well, you just need to make sure that your your data is synced between, you know, two computers. I don't think she would know how to even start that, you know. And so it's not like the solution that anybody can do yet. And I think that's where Apple was trying to go with iCloud. And I don't think they're there yet. 
Um, one thing I did on my recent trip and, uh, and, uh, Brian in the chat room had asked this question is I have, you know, a Drobo attached to my iMac and that's kind of the cold storage. That's the stuff that really isn't active, but I do want to keep it, you know, I can throw so much data on a Drobo. So it's kind of nice having all that there. And that since it's attached to my iMac and I've got a Backblaze account, it, it backs the entire Drobo up to Backblaze as well. And on my recent trip, something happened where I needed a, um, a contract from an old client matter, like 10 years old. And it was not on any of my active devices or, you know, anywhere that I could get easily from my, from my laptop. But what it was, it was backed up to my Backblaze account. So I was able to go through the Backblaze single file um, restore. And so, you know, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I was able to get that file back, which was kind of cool. That's that's very cool. Yeah. And I think people don't remember that, that, that your online backup may be another place where you can selectively individually restore files. I've I've done that as well, especially because you have that ability to go back in time and grab files. Yep. Yep. So that, that was kind of fun, you know, doing that. But yeah, it, it's a lot easier than it used to be, um, you know bill so if you're interested in doing this take a look at what you're doing now bill's original question makes reference to the fact that he does heavyweight tools for statistics which i'm not sure what that means i mean does that mean excel excel runs fine on the little macbook maybe it's something bigger and the adobe uh, photography package and now that they're putting metal into um to the mac os with starting with uh, 10.11 he may be able to even run some of that on the little laptop but um, that stuff, you would just have to find a, a um, location to store those data files that you could access from the laptop and then have the software installed and running. Uh, but for the, all the smaller stuff, you know, like the email and the Word documents and that, you're going to be fine with a small laptop. Uh, Christopher has a question for you, David. He says, my personal white whale has to has been defined a CRM, and I guess you have to educate this because I'm not entirely sure what that acronym stands for. Um, I, I have an idea based on the context of his question that not only initiates emails and calls, but also allows me to begin drafting letters. Uh, you know, the icon next to addresses and contacts that links to maps. How nice would it be to have an icon that started a letter in pages or even Word? He says, I have a full library of text expander snippets for letters, but yet I'm still cutting and pasting addresses. So I, I take it that CRM is some kind of management system. Okay, customer relationship management or something like that is what people yeah, in the chat room are that, saying. That's exactly what it is. In fact, this is an open invitation out there for someone who's in sales. I think we're going to have to bring in a, um, a live show guest to talk about CRM solutions. Uh, so these are usually it's a salesperson that does these because, you know, you want to track every time you talk to that customer and anything they ask you for. And CRM systems are much more than just an address book. They are, um, you know, sales tracking, lead tracking. They do a ton of, of things that people in sales use. And um, there's some really great online resources. And most of the best ones anymore are online based CRM Um uh, and we get this question on occasion from listeners asking us what we recommend for CRM and neither one of us use it. I mean, I, with my clients, I have a, a note for each kind of major client and I track things in there. It's a very um, text-based, loosey-goosey CRM system. It's not, you know, a high-tech one that's going to send me notifications and talk about lead management and all that stuff. So, but because what I do, I don't need that. But um, I, at some point we'll have to get somebody in here. So now to get on with Christopher's question, um, he has a uh, text expander snippets and all these things he's doing, 
But it sounds to me like what the real question he has is I want to be able to be in a contact card like through Spotlight and I want to be able to press a button and have it just open a new letter and address it to that person. Uh, that is something that I run into all the time. And I do like to kind of streamline that stuff. Um, my solution isn't as simple as just pushing a button and a contact card, but it's not too far off. Uh, and Katie, I'd like to hear how you do this as well. Maybe because you're at your office, you guys have a system in place, but I have I send people a, for that. Yeah. Okay. So I, I send a lot of letters out to people and, and even when I was at the firm, I did this myself as well. And what I do is in every, everything where, you know, I, I'm going to send repeated letters to a person. I save a template letter and I call it like, I would call it Katie Floyd letter template. And if I go in and so it's got the, um, it's got, you know, a letter with Katie's address on it and it's set up in pages or word or whatever document I'm working in and it auto puts the date and everything. So I can open up that template and then I do a save as quickly and then I can type my letter and send it off. Um, the, uh, now creating that letter, I'm going to talk about how I access in a minute, but creating that letter, you can, you can streamline that as well. And this is where I use launch bar. So, uh, if you activate launch bar, and this is something you don't get with Spotlight. You know how Launchbar does a little bit more than Spotlight. This is an example. Um, if I if I set up a new letter, I feel like a, a template letter that doesn't have an addressee in it. I can go to the address line and I can activate Launchbar and type you know KF for Katie Floyd, and it'll show up. Uh, then I can right click or I can right arrow in that to Katie's address and then hit Command C to copy it and then just paste it into the letter. Uh, LaunchBar is smart enough to know not only that you want the address, but you also want the name of the person. So it actually puts Katie Floyd's name and her address in right there. So once you've done that once, then you save that as the template. Then later, when you want the template, if I just type KF letter form or KFL, usually, you know, LaunchBar learns the more you use something, it's going to go find that document, that template document. So I don't even have to drill for it in the finder. So uh, as quickly as I can type LaunchBar activation code, you know, KF letter form or KFLF or something like that, it'll show up. I hit return. It opens up that template and then I'm off to the races. So um, I know that was a lot of information. Did it make sense to you? No, it did. And, you know, Bonnie brings, first off, I didn't mean to sound so pretentious when I said I had people for that. I just meant we, we do have, we have a PC based um, document management system in the office that I personally don't use much, but that we use to keep track of all that stuff. So what I do is I tend to type a letter and then say, here, this is the letter that goes to so-and-so. And then somebody else puts it in, in all of that stuff. Um, but uh, Bonnie mentioned in the chat room that busy contacts tends to at least keep track because it will, it will look at your mail and it will keep track of all of the things uh, and all of the correspondence that you've had with people. So that's helpful. Um, but I don't think it has an ability that if you click on the thing, it will, it will create a letter to someone. Although I will say that those guys are very open to suggestions. So that, that might be an option. Yeah. And, and busy contacts really is closer to a CRM than the contacts app because of the integration with a calendar and email. So that's, but I think what Christopher is probably talking about is a full blown CRM system. And like I said, yeah, what know, about, um, what about market circles products? Yeah. Well that, you know what, that is pretty close to, and, uh, and I know Daylight. they're up to a lot lately. So, um, um, I would look into that as well. Uh, but you know, it, it is, um, CRM is, I think something that we haven't addressed adequately in the show. So if you're out there and you've got something interesting to say about CRM, send me an email and we'll talk and we'll get you on at some point, hopefully. 
that's not everybody. Just we got to pick one. <laughs> we can't do a whole year sh- sh- uh, worth of shows on CRM, but I think it's something that the listeners would like to hear about. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should mention that almost all of those, you know, some of the other ones were a little longer at the end, but almost all of those questions, David, came in through um, our Ask MPU hashtag on Twitter. And that was a great way for us to get quick feedback from the Mac Power users community. And I, I got to say, I, I really enjoyed that. We were able to cover uh, a lot of different topics, a lot of questions from people in our community. Um, that was fun. I agree. Please so, use hashtag ask MPU. Yeah. And you can send us questions. And just if you're interested behind the scenes, the way that works is uh, we've got an if this, then that rule that monitors that hashtag ask MPU for us. And it puts that in a Google Doc for us that that we use to prep for the show. So if if you want to if you want to increase your chances of getting your question answered on Mac Power Users Live, you probably want to make the barrier to us answering that question as low as possible. And uh, the easiest way to do that is to use the Ask MPU hashtag. Yeah, I, I really find that in terms of answering questions for listeners and readers, um, Twitter, I'm so much more likely to give you a quick answer there than I'm with email because email, I'm just barely hanging on at all times. So do, do think about doing it there through, um, right. Through Twitter. Um, quick, oh, quick question, quick answer. 140 and you're done. Yeah. It's a lot easier that way. Well, listen, I want to take a minute and talk about our next sponsor before we move on. We still got a lot of questions and subjects to cover today. Uh, but, uh, the sponsor I'd like to talk about is our friends over at Gazelle. And uh, uh, this episode is is brought to you by Gazelle, the fast and simple way to sell your used gadgets. Find out what your iPhone, iPad, or other Apple products are worth at gazelle.com. And this is a great time of year to be thinking about Gazelle because, you know, we're coming up on some new devices that are going to be coming up from Apple at the end of the summer, most likely. And Gazelle is just a, a great place to deal with all that stuff. It's It's so hard. To, to sell your old devices with something like Craigslist where you have to worry about these, you know, back alley meetings. Uh, you'd rather just make it simple with people you trust that you know will pay you. And Gazelle does that. And Gazelle doesn't only cover selling devices. And I bet everybody listening to this has got some piece of tech in a drawer, especially if we're Apple people, that we could probably sell today to Gazelle and make some money on it. So why not make some money? It's not going to be worth anything, really. It's only be, become worth less as you leave it in the drawer. But not only do they cover that, they also have the ability to buy devices, which is something that is really great. I am. Um, uh, I haven't told you this, Katie. I'm going to come clean now um, uh, with the release of iOS 8.4. We got the ability to see iBooks author books on the phone. You are not going to say Mike was right, are you? Uh, no, I'm not saying Mike was right, but I did buy a used uh, six plus. I have an extra phone that I'm working with right now. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to. You know, I bought a used one from Gazelle. I used their uh, pre-owned uh, phone. I didn't get the the like new. I got the slightly used version because I was trying to get it. I got in, a, you know, the low end on a budget. I just wanted to make sure my books looked okay on these big phones. And um, and now my daughter wants it, you know, so at some point, because, you know, her phone's getting pretty old, so she's going to probably be getting it. But buying it through Gazelle, I got, I didn't, like I said, didn't get the brand new one. It looks brand new. I can't, I, I mean, I looked at this thing with like a loop, I could not find what it was on this phone that made them think that this wasn't like new because it looks like new to me and it's been working great. I've had it now for two or three months. And, um, and I bought that through Gazelle. It was just a great way to get a used device and, you know, hundreds of dollars less than it would have cost at Apple. And, uh, it's just a, a good way to go. So you don't need to go to Apple for this stuff. If you lost or broken your phone or someone in your family needs a new phone, uh, look at their pre-owned devices because it's a great way to buy a low-cost replacement device. 
and they still offer great deals on trade-ins for your old devices. So go to gazelle.com to see what's available for their certified pre-owned devices. Uh, the benefits of buying the pre-owned devices is that they're available in two conditions, like new or certified good, and certified good is what I was just talking about. And all devices are put through a 30-point inspection to ensure they're fully functional. I mean, I thought about trying to buy one on Craigslist, but I got, you know, who knows where it's been? Has it been dipped in water or is there something inside it that's going to just fritz out on me a week after I buy it? I mean, Gazelle just was, it just felt a lot better going to someone like Gazelle to buy this. Um, the benefits for trading in to Gazelle is that you get paid in cash. The payment's fast. It's risk-free. Uh, they wipe your data for free. So you don't have to worry about someone, you know, harvesting the data off your phone and they're trustworthy. They've paid $175 million to over 1 million customers. So go check out Gazelle. It's easy, free shipping, fast process. Um, if you've got something in your drawer you want to sell, if there's something you've been thinking about getting, check it out. And uh, do we have a, a promo code for Gazelle? They're just click the link on the on checkout and they'll see us. Okay, so when you check out, make sure to do that because that makes us look great and we always want to look great. And frankly, um, it helps us out. So uh, at, at checkout, click on podcasts and Mac Power Users. And everybody go check out Gazelle, whether you're buying or selling, they've got you covered. So we've got a couple of uh, bits of feedback about the Apple Watch. The first one is a tip from Mark about getting the right fit. So here's Mark. Hey, Mac Power users. On a recent episode, I heard a guest say that they found one hole of the Apple Watch sport band was too small, but the next hole was too big. So I wanted to pass along something I discovered that solves this problem. So Apple gave people two sport band sizes, a small medium band and a medium large band. And if you align the ends of those two bands that go into Apple Watch, you'll find that the holes on the small medium band are exactly in between the holes in the medium large band. In other words, if you have the medium large band on your wrist and one hole is too small and one is too large, then try the small medium band as its holes are exactly in between the sizes of the holes in the medium large band. Now, this doesn't apply to the smallest four holes on the small medium band or the largest four holes on the medium large band since those holes don't actually overlap. But the rest of the holes do overlap, so if you've been having this trouble, check it out. I've written about this on my website, markdmill.com, and I will include a link to that article in the show notes so you can see the picture and the way I've shown how they align. Also, on that site, you'll find my weekly watch screen articles where I interview people on how they're using Apple Watch, what apps they're using, and other tips and tricks like this one that they found. So check that out at markdmill.com, and I hope you find this tip helpful. Clever. So yeah. <laughs> yeah somebody the- at Apple thought of that. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed with the uh, first off, I got to say, this sport band is really comfortable, David. I, I love the look of my Melanese loop and I, I love wearing it. But um, when when I get home on Friday or if I'm going to the gym on Friday, I, I put the sport band on and it stays on pretty much all weekend unless I'm getting fancy and going somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I so mine came with a sport band and I've I've not felt motivated to find an alternative. I, I think there'll be a lot of third-party alternatives in the near future, and maybe I'll get one, but, you know, for my watch, the sport is fine. I've been wearing it to court and everything. It doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. One thing I one thing I did find, though, is that I have actually changed holes on the sport band, um, and I've changed at least one, maybe maybe two holes. I, I, my, the, the, I have tightened my sport band for my, the everyday, 
I, hopefully this makes sense, but you know, I started on on one size and then I've tightened one size, and I don't know if that's maybe my wrist has gotten smaller from using the Apple Watch. I don't know, but I've I've tightened one size, and I'm I'm guessing that's maybe just because of the little give and take in the band that it's loosened up a little bit over the over the about you know couple of months that I've used it. I noticed that I made that change um, about a month into wearing it, and then I always tightened it up one one notch when I was exercising. So I now tighten it up another notch when I'm exercising because I find that wearing it just one notch tighter when I'm exercising tends to keep my watch from slipping a little bit, which gives me a little bit better um, uh, uh, heart rate sensor. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe with all the exercise you're doing, you're, um, you know, you're, you're, my wrist is getting smaller. Yeah. The, um, uh, well, either way, you know, it's, um, that that was smart though. I just, the idea of someone Apple said, okay, let's just make the holes offsetting and the two bands. I mean, that, that was pretty smart. I'll just send that along. I think it was Jeff, um, Richardson who had that problem. So I'll have to send that off to him if he's not listening. Um, also Josh wrote in about the Fitbit and he says, are you going to use both the watch and the Fitbit or replace one with the other? He recently purchased a watch and as a current Fitbit user, he's wondering how the watch replaced or complemented the Fitbit. And, um, he has to charge it and be idiotic to wear both a watch and a Fitbit. Well, it wouldn't be idiotic if you had something you liked out of both of them. And the Fitbit community is much larger than that of the watch. So he's trying to figure out how it fits. Um, I guess it really depends on what you are, um, what you're doing with it. Like for instance, uh, some of the Fitbits are sleep trackers. And if you wear it on your wrist at night, it tracks your sleep. Apple watch is not, um, there's no app for it. I guess you could do it technically, but you have to charge the watch at some point. Uh, so I, I don't think Apple's really pushing. In fact, the, the watch OS two is trying to turn your watch into an alarm clock on your bedside table. So I'd say on that regard, if you really want the sleep tracking, maybe you keep the Fitbit next to your bed and, and use it for sleep tracking and don't wear it during the day. As a step tracker, uh, there's been several posts up, and I guess I should try and track one or two down, but it seemed to me like it was kind of a wash. Everybody was saying that Fitbit and Apple Watch do a, a decent job of tracking steps. I don't think either one is scientifically accurate, but they're in the ballpark. So I don't think you really need, um, if you have a watch, I don't think you need to carry a Fitbit for step tracking. Um, what are some of the other differentiators between these two? Well, I think the the big ones are, you know, price, community. Do, do you want to watch or not? Um, Fitbit has a, at least they had, an active community. I don't know what the current status of that is. Um, and then Fitbit has a wide range of products. They have, you know, they, they start, I think, around the $50 range and they go up to the several hundred dollar range, depending on you know, whether you want a separate tracker that you can clip on or put in your pocket um, or more of a smartwatch type product that, that you wear on your wrist. They, they can be almost as expensive as an Apple Watch. Yeah, just as a, um, for my own personal experience, my Fitbit went missing about a month before the Apple Watch came out. And I swear it wasn't me throwing it away or, you know, trying to give an excuse because I was going to buy an Apple Watch no matter what. Yesterday, I put on a pair of shorts I hadn't worn for a long time, and guess what I found in the pocket? You know, uh-huh. so so I have my Fitbit, and today's July fourth, so I'm going to be giving it away. Uh, some family are coming over, and one of my family members doesn't have any fitness tracking, but I know she would like to do that. So this Fitbit's just sitting in a drawer now. I'm going to just give it to her. I don't feel any need to keep it anymore. Um, I mean, the Apple Watch does so much more for me than a Fitbit ever did. Um, I don't know if it's as good for all the fitness stuff. Clearly, it's not as good for sleep tracking because it doesn't do it. Um, but it, um, I don't feel like a hole in my heart for the Fitbit anymore. I'm, I'm happy with just using one device. 
Now, I, th- I think the Fitbit is a good starter device for people who aren't interested in the Apple Watch. I've thought about buying a, a Fitbit um, for my mom, for example. You know, she, she's she been interested in, in fitness and becoming more active. She's started walking and walking in the park and tracking those types of things. But she doesn't want an Apple Watch. She says, I, I don't want an Apple Watch. I wouldn't wear an Apple Watch. I, I can't see an Apple Watch. I just, I don't want that. But I've been thinking about maybe it's kind of one of those things is, is that a good gift to buy somebody? Would would she like that or would she look at me and go, oh, what, what is this? Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I've been thinking about picking up a Fitbit for her and, you know, saying, well, you know, this is, you know, she's, she bought a pedometer and a pedometer is significantly clunkier than a Fitbit. Yeah. Uh, Peter uh, wrote in on the chat room saying he likes the Fitbit app where you can challenge your friends. Can you do that with an Apple Watch? Uh, I'm not aware of any way to do that. No, I guess you could you share can't. your data, but it's you not can't. as simple. Yeah. I am I would not be surprised, though, if a couple of things happen. One, if, and I do not know if anybody does, let me know, um, if this is a part of iOS um, 9. But I, I know David Smith, who does the Pedometer Plus Plus app, is excited because as part of iOS 9, originally he was only allowed to get the uh, step count data from the phone. And so as a result, his app was out of sync because he couldn't get phone and wrist data, but that is now opening up with native watch apps as he's now going to be able to get his app in sync and, and get that data, uh, you know? So for example, will he be able to, w- will you be able to see third party apps that will become that social aspect? Uh, and, and maybe, uh, maybe, so maybe there'll be third party apps that will, will do that, but will any of them really be able to garner a big enough community? I don't know, but I I think it's only a matter of time before Apple creates a community around some kind of fitness tracking. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, Apple could do it themselves through the health app, or even if it was a third party app, if it had a system that made it easy to invite friends. I mean, you don't, I'm, I'm assuming you don't need a big group of people, it's just your, your close friends that you would want to be doing this. So anyway, um, I, this, this whole discussion though raised in my mind, just kind of a check-in question with you. The Apple Watch we've had now about two months. Um, are you still wearing it every day? Are you still finding use for it? Or is it something that's becoming, you know, less important to you? No, it's more important to me. It's the first thing that I put. It's I keep it next to my bed. I put it on first thing in the morning, you know, I guess right after I get out of the shower. And then I take it off last thing at night. I, I've I've worn it every day since I bought it. Yeah, I am. Um... I'm I'm with you. I I really like it, and I mean I don't think about it as much, but it's so integrated into my life. I mean, just eating breakfast this morning, and a couple notifications came in, and I was able to check them on my watch, and just all sorts of little things. We went on vacation, and and it was in Hawaii, so I was in the ocean most of a lot during the day, so I didn't wear my watch much during that vacation, and I missed it. You know, so I, I found myself wanting to go to my wrist to check on things once in a while. So. Yeah, to me, the Apple Watch is definitely sticky at, at two months. I guess we'll check in on this in another two or three months to see if that's still the case. Uh, if you've got a reason why um, we're why you think you should carry a Fitbit and a watch, let us know. We'll put it in the next um, the next feedback show. Um, task management. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we we had a couple of people write in, and and Mike and Glenn will talk about they they had a little little different takes on this. Um, you know, we did that task management show with with Kurosh Dini and so much positive feedback about that. Thank you. A lot of people really liked that show, but I, I think I was the one who who brought it up, but but you chimed in as well. 
And we talked about things that are kind of too small for OmniFocus, things that we don't put in OmniFocus. Um, for example, I keep my grocery list in the Reminders app. And recently I've started using Do for um, certain types of reminders or certain types of tasks, um, things like taking out the trash or reminding me to post Mac Power users on Sunday night, um, you know, things that I didn't want to clutter OmniFocus with for certain types of repeating events. And um, Mike said it, it almost seems like that defeats the purpose of a task management system because now you have several places where your tasks are managed and you, you're not seeing 100% of the picture of your time. And while these may be trivial tasks, you do have to manage them. Doesn't it make more sense to use a single system? And um, I'll go ahead and read Glenn's comment, and then we can we can just kind of take them both, I think, as a bundle. Um, you know, Glenn says he was intrigued when we started talking about um, different silos for different things. And Katie started using apps like Reminders and, and Do. And he says, on one hand, I get it, the right tool for the right job. But for him, that was always a slippery slope. He would have different email accounts for different functions and different notebooks. And what he has done is he has gone back to a simple system. He uses one notebook that is his trusted system that he captures everything in. And for him, he's a manager of 80 plus people. Um, and his most successful iteration over time has been one single analog notebook. It's something that he can keep with him. It's always accessible in his particular job. Um, he can't regularly have a digital device with him. Uh, except for when he's at his desk, and that's not necessarily where all of his work happens. Um, and so we've gotten a couple of different different emails with with comments similar to that. So do you want to? They're very yeah, well, valid points. I, I completely empathize with where these comments are coming from. You know, why would you have two systems? I mean, it's like having two calendars or having two task lists. You're not going to, at some point there's going to be friction and something's not going to get on a list because you're not going to know where it belongs or you're being going to be looking at the wrong list. I, all that stuff makes sense to me. Although I, I think, you know, going back to the subject we were talking with Kurosh is um, I would almost say the stuff that I've got outside of OmniFocus are more lists than they are um, task lists. They're just lists like groceries is a good example. There are definite benefits to me to having the groceries outside of OmniFocus because Using a reminders list, I can quickly add via Siri, and I know you can do that in OmniFocus too, but you know, you can add via Siri, and I can share the list with my wife and kids, and they we all share a grocery list. So um they don't use OmniFocus. So if I put, you know, spicy carrots on the grocery list, when my daughter's at the grocery store, she looks at it, and my wife goes to the grocery, she looks at it. So there's a good chance I'll get my carrots faster by using the reminders list. Same thing, like books I want to read and things. It just doesn't seem to me um, to fit. And in my brain, that's a very easy line to draw, you know, because there aren't very many of these lines. It's there's like Target, grocery store, Home Depot, books I want to read. You know, it's, it's a very small list of things. Another good example is um, packing list for a trip. Um, when we were just went on our vacation together, we had a shared list for that. And it was the same thing because we all shared it. Uh, anybody could take care of any item on the list at any time. And that to me made sense. Um, whereas things that don't, uh, that don't naturally fit into something like that, they just go into OmniFocus. So in my brain, it's like 98% of the time it's an OmniFocus, but for these types of lists, I'm okay with that distinction. If you're not, uh, OmniFocus can handle that or whatever task manager you're using can handle those lists. But for me, those make sense. Boy, I was long winded. No, I think that's, there's no right answer to this. 
you know, there's there's no wrong answer to this. It it's whatever system works for you. And if if the analog notebooks works for you and that's the system that helps you get your things done, that's the system for you. That's the system that you should be using. If having everything in OmniFocus, including your grocery list, including walk the dog, including take out the trash, and that's the system that you've developed and that's what works for you, keep it. That's fine. Um, you know, my system, David, if your system of, of keeping your, your carrots in the reminders app works for you and that's how you get your carrots at the end of the day, you should keep doing that because if you put your carrots in OmniFocus, you're, you're not going to get them. There's no cookie cutter solution. I mean, we can tell you what Katie and David do um, and, and Kurosh can tell you what he does, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these things are going to work for you. U- ultimately, it's trial and error and ultimately you've got to find out what works for you. Um, I, I do want to say, though, I I am really digging do. Um, it's it's a reminders app. It, it's a remind. I, I'll call it more of a timer slash reminders app for the iPhone. And I use it for things that absolutely positively have to get done on a certain time frame. Um, because what it allows you to do is it, it allows you to create very time sensitive reminders and it will pester the heck out of you until you get it done. Um, and I look at OmniFocus, you know, I don't, I don't live in OmniFocus. I look at OmniFocus a couple of times a day, but if I've got to um, make a very important phone call at a specific time, that's probably something on a calendar. That's a bad example. But if I've got to do something specific at a specific time, um, and I do not want to forget, and I've got to get it done, that's probably something that I'm going to put in do. You know, for example, I put post Mac power users. I've got a reminder in do that um, at 8.30 every Sunday night and automatically reminds me every 30 minutes until I check off that it's done. Because if I don't post the Mac power user show on Sunday night, I've got a lot of angry tweets and emails on Monday morning. That's something that's got to get done. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like Katie said, you gotta, you gotta go with what works for you. Um, uh, Just though on that show with Kurosh, we started playing that show literally months before we recorded it. And I was nervous about that show because it was, it was kind of a hippy dippy show compared to some of our more practical, you know, just let's talk about software shows. So I didn't know how it would go. And I was really happy to hear all the positive feedback. So thanks everybody. And we'll probably do some more programming like that as we go into the future. Yeah. All right. We we got some other feedback uh, from Paul. Uh, Paul wrote in uh, to take you to task about restoring iPhoto. And he basically said that I was right and you were wrong. And so that's all we have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, Paul really laid the wood to me, and <laughs> I guess uh, he makes some points. Um, so when we we had this discussion about restoring your photos application data, and what I said was, "Hey, um, like when I had my new laptop, I just connected it to iCloud and said, this is my iCloud connection, and here's my photos,' and it downloaded for me." Um, Paul says, "Well, there's some reasons why that's not a good idea." And uh, the two uh, big problems, he says, number one, if the library is large, long download times and bandwidth impacts your data. So if you have 40,000 photos, that's 100 gigabytes, and that would take days and kill his network. Um, that's a good point. You know, I didn't consider that because what, the way I did it on my laptop is I said, don't download all original files. It's just, you know, it's the reference, you know, small versions, and it was not a big deal for that. And he says you'll lose some of your curation with your library, like books and slideshows. Um, 
and there's an Apple support article on that. I wasn't aware of that. And uh, I have to go back and test this, but assuming, you know, this is all on the up and up, you're not going to get your books that way. And um, if you want the books to sync over, then you need to do the hard, uh, basically copy of the data in. Um, yeah. And, I it, don't, and it looks like you can also lose some of your metadata because some of the information like faces and things like that are not necessarily stored in the cloud. Yeah. Faces does not. And I think I talked about that on the show we did on photos. Faces is per machine. It's not, you know, they, this is something where Google's does a better job because they do it in the cloud and uh, that data is everywhere on the faces data. It's just on your local machine. However, they are tagged with the name of the face. While you don't have the it's it's kind of a, a it's a it's a um the distinction is a little difficult to make but they they once faces completes it tags a photo with the name but it you, you don't have like the faces buttons with all the pre-populated faces data you're going to see on the primary machine so uh, but you know but paul even says at the end you know this is really difficult because when you just copy the file in there's a good chance if you, you know you could end up with duplicated photos as well so I'm not sure what the better solution is. Um, uh, in my case, if I were to do it over again, knowing that I'm putting, you know, reference files and not the full size files. And since I don't have any books planned right now um, or the book I have planned, I could do it on the one computer. I, I'd be I would go back to doing it the way I recommended when we talked about the show and just connect it and let it do it that way to avoid the possibility of duplication. But uh, this should be easier, I guess, is the bottom line. Uh, and Bob wrote in with a tip about uh, Pinboard and DevonThink, and he said he was listening to one of our listeners in episode 256 describe how he uses DevonThink with Pocket by telling DevonThink to follow his Pocket-generated RSS feed. He said, here's a similar hint. Every page on your Pinboard account has an RSS feed. For instance, you can have a tag to underscore DevonThink for the page uh, and, and have a tag that then for that page will then generate its own unique RSS feed consisting of all the items that are tagged to DevonThink. And he said, even though uh, the items are private, the feed is only protected by that secret ID. So it's not super secure. Um, and that's interesting. That's actually what I use to create the, the reading list link on my website. Although I do it with everything is uh, I've got a pinboard account and I've got um, everything that I, I put in Instapaper gets backed up to that Pinboard account. And then I use that RSS feed to generate a page on my website. So I kind of do something similar with that. But yeah, but this is a way of getting even more specialized with it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Devin Think is so deep. And um, we'll be coming back to that. I, I'm still playing with it. Uh, have you spent much time with it since we did the show? I haven't had an opportunity. I've been pretty busy with yeah. this summer class. But it's over now. So I, I look forward to doing that. Okay, um, well, let's talk about another sponsor and then get on with some of the listener workflows and tips we received this month. Yeah. Uh, speaking of my class, I want to talk about a sponsor who has saved my bacon for this. Uh, and that is our good pals over at the Omni Group uh, and their product, Omni Outliner. So if if you need to outline, and that is how I take all of my notes for all of my classes, uh, Omni Outliner is the premier tool for Mac and iOS. It allows you to store and collect all sorts of information for anything. And they, if you're not quite sure where to get started, or maybe you've never outlined before, that's okay because Omni Outliner can get you started. They've got built-in themes. 
They even have one called Class Notes, which is what I use to take all of my class notes. But Omni Outliner 4 is very feature-rich and flexible. You can use it for any of a number of tasks. You can create lists, you can outline a speech, or um, you can use it for writing a novel. But what I use it for is taking notes in class because you can quickly structure and add all the information you need to beef up your outlines. So typically what I do is we get assigned reading every week uh, in our course books, and I'll read that and outline what I've read. Uh, But then I go back and I supplement uh, whatever we talk about in class. So I go in and I supplement those notes that I read with whatever we're talking about in class. Uh, You can even add more information to that outline by pulling in attachments, recordings, and PDFs. And especially in this estate planning class, things have gotten pretty complicated and uh, the professor will draw these complicated outlines and diagrams on the board. And when we take a break, you'll see all the students going up to to the whiteboard and taking pictures of it with their cell phones. And I don't know what they're doing with that information afterwards. I don't know how they're organizing it. But what I do is I admit I go up there with them and I take a picture of the board with my cell phone. But then I take that information and I just take that photo and I pull it into my outline right into OmniFocus. So where I've discussed whatever we were talking about in class in my notes, I've now got the picture of that outline. Or maybe I've taken outline uh, notes on a piece of paper that I come home and I scan and I add those in as a PDF or as a JPEG to my notes later. Uh, You can even record audio when you're taking notes with an Omni Outliner. Like our last class of the year uh, was an exam review and she went over a sample exam. And you can bet I hit the record button as I was taking notes in that class and was actually able to reference that because we had an open everything exam, was able to reference that as I was was taking the exam. And uh, it was just amazing. And best of all, They've also got a version for your iPad and your iPhone, and it will all sync using their free omnipresent sync service. That saved my bacon because when the logic board and my MacBook Air died in the middle of my class, I was without my MacBook Air. I was without my notes. I didn't know what I was going to do until I realized, you know what? They're all up in the cloud. They're all in omnipresence. So I took my iPad and my external keyboard. It was no problem. It was just like working on my Mac Everything just worked. So if you want to go check out Omni Outliner, you can head over to their website at omnigroup.com. They have got a free trial, so you can try it before you buy it. There's a two-week free trial, and they've even got a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head over to omnigroup.com and check out Omni Outliner, and thanks to Omni Group for support of the show. Yeah, you know, that it looks pretty good on that big phone too, on the outliner. <laughs> I can tell you that that's one app that I do like on the big phone. Uh, anyway, so Matt wrote in and um, the ongoing theme about bandsawing books that, that will never die on the Mac power users. So we heard from Matt. I think we should just play it. Hey, Katie and David. Great show. Thanks for the time you take to pull it together. As both of you do, I rely heavily on scanning paper documents and love my old reliable scan snap. For a while, David has been threatening to take a book to his bandsaw to cut off the binding for scanning. I figured I would do my part for the MPU community and sacrifice an old chemistry book I had laying around. Since my name is Matt, and there has been a recent trend of Matt's recording themselves doing dangerous things, I thought I would include an audio recording of me bandsawing off the binding. Unfortunately, after several attempts to record it, the bandsaw was just too loud. Oh well. The good news is it worked great. I used a standard four-teeth per-inch wood blade, and it cut like it would a piece of hardwood. The edges came out extremely smooth and went through the scan snap like a charm. All in all, it took about 10 seconds to cut off the binding and was no more dangerous than cutting wood. I've included a few photos of the results if you'd like to share them. Time to take the cookbooks out to the workshop. Thanks again. 
And hopefully this helps the incredibly small segment of the population who are paperless woodworkers. Yeah, I, you know, his pictures were convincing for me. So I did take some cookbooks out to the bandsaw and uh, it worked. It looks good. So, I mean, it's not that much money to go get this done at like um, Staples or one of these places. But if you do have a bandsaw with a decent blade, it's not that difficult. I would like to say that Mac Power Users does not support or condone in any way the uh, dangerous activity of Mac Power Users listeners and then recording that activity and sending an audio comments. It's not that it's not that dangerous, really, if you know what you're doing. That's all I'm going to say. If you know what you're doing. No. Yeah. So we, we, we do we do not want your audio comments of you bandsawing. We do not want your audio comments of you jumping out of an airplane. We do not want your audio comments of you. Uh, what else could you, I don't even know. But no, don't know. Let, let's stop that. I know. If you record a comment while jumping don't. out of an airplane, I actually do want to hear it. No, Just no, don't send David. It to Katie. <laughs> Wait a second. Well, yeah. Are you, are you so, upset? So dangerous. <laughs> okay. Um, we heard from Keith and uh, a solution to bandwidth limits. Uh, in episode 245, we discussed monitoring monthly cable bandwidth. And uh, he had a, an interesting solution. So Keith has a family uh, like me with some, I believe he had some teenagers and Netflix and he was using up a lot of data. Um, he talked about, you know, you use a lot of up uh, bandwidth when you use a service like Backblaze because you're you know, like with me, I've got this massive Drobo. And when I first started uploading, I actually got a call from the cable company saying, boy, you're using a lot of data. What's going on? And I told them, they said, okay, that's fine. Just make sure it's done in a month or two. And they didn't bother me. But th this was such a problem for Keith that they started charging him extra. And one of the things that was a problem for him was he was using these high definition security cameras that were streaming live 24 seven. And he said that was the biggest data hog for him. Now uh, that was using drop cams. I, now I haven't got that far yet, but when I do put my home alarm system in, I don't think I would have it streaming 24-7. I think I would only have it streaming when there was uh, activity detected. Yeah, or how, maybe how, when you weren't home, but that still would be a lot. Yeah, So, but do you see, I guess, because I know you have some cameras in your home. Are you seeing lots of bandwidth used up with those cameras? No, because I, I only have it when there's activity detected. So, yeah. Okay, so so that's one way he could have solved it. But no, he wants some And mine are super HD. Mine are, yeah. Yeah. But so, so he, that was the big problem that he had. And so his cable bill was getting really high. So what he did, and he was using, I believe it wasn't Cox. Who was he using? Comcast. Comcast. And so what he did was he switched his family from a residential plan to a business plan. And when he did that, he said there were a couple benefits. The first was there's no data cap. So all those extra fees went away immediately. Uh, he got 50 uh, megabytes per second plan, which was um, actual uh, realized uh, 50 megabytes, whereas the 100 megabytes for the residential extreme plan, he said, was very um, iffy. Sometimes it wasn't even close to that. So he seems really happy. And that's something I'd never thought about. So if you've got cap uh, data plan caps, you may want to consider switching your house to a business plan. And I, I would guess that's true for most cable companies. Yeah, I actually looked into this. Uh, one one of the things that I found is that the um, the prices were a little bit more expensive for the commercial plans than they were for the residential plans. So that's something to be aware of. And the commercial plans typically required a contract, whereas the residential plans did not. Although I am 
I do understand that in some places, uh, the commercial plans are the residential plans are also requiring contracts now. So that was something that, that kept me from doing it. We'll see. Well, you're not running into that issue, are you right now? I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not running into it. And, yeah. and my provider, I'm not running over my cap. My cap is 250. I've run over it a handful of times, but right now my provider isn't charging me. Yeah, we, we haven't had too much problem. I know my family uses a lot of data and my kids constantly watch Netflix. I mean, you know, going back to our cutting the cord show, we're, we're really talking about it now in the Sparks house because we just don't watch the TV channels that much. So maybe we don't need them anymore and we could put some of the extra money into more bandwidth. Uh, anyway, uh, Mark wrote in capturing text messages to OmniFocus. This is kind of a little bit of an ongoing theme. Um, I've always said on the show that text messages are a tough thing. You know, when you get text messages, how do you turn those into active tasks? And if I drop the ball for people, it's, it's quite often because they ask me to do something in a text message. And um, my ultimate solution that I think I talked about in the show was just long press on the text itself and then copy it and then open OmniFocus and and create that as a task there. But it's not very automated. And um, I think Mark, iOS 9 is going to help you with this because you're going to be able to tell Siri to remind you of this, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I'm going to have to try that. I've got iOS 9 running on my iPad now, so maybe I'll play with that and report back. Uh, but it, it's it's just not that simple. Uh, Mark set up an if this, then that rule where he has an SMS channel and if this, then that, and he sets a trigger. So anything that comes in on that account gets sent to his secret OmniFocus account to create an OmniFocus task. Uh, if he, he does it through Gmail and Gmail with if this, then that is a lot more powerful than a standard mail account because Gmail can look at the data inside the mail where most email accounts that can't do that but so he set that up so if he receives a text message with a to-do item he long holds the message bubble kind of like i do and then he copies it i'm sorry then if you tap more you can forward the message and he forwards the message to the secret account if this then that then takes care of it and processes it to OmniFocus within the next half hour so that's another way of going about it i'm not sure if that's faster than just dropping it OmniFocus right on device or not probably is because you're just forwarding it as opposed to, you know, opening OmniFocus and pasting and doing all the other stuff. But it's, um, I, I don't know that there's a good solution for it yet. Speaking of messages, uh, Chris and our Google plus group. And if you haven't joined our Google plus group, there's a, there's a link on the Mac power users page over on relay.m FM where you can, our, we're, we're almost up to 3000 people in our Google plus group. David, it's pretty active over there. I've got to spend more time over there. You do. Keeping up, keeping up with the emails is you guys have got me busy with the email load lately. But uh, Chris over there uh, has posted, and I've put a link to this in the show notes, a Hazel rule to import photos or videos sent through iMessage um, into the photos app. And so the, the way that this works is it works on your Mac. So you have to, because obviously Hazel is only running on your Mac. So you have to create a Hazel rule that monitors the library messages attachments folder. And uh, then you add a rule to recurse into the folders. And if you look at the images in this post, that will make more sense because the, there are multiple subfolders in there. And then you add a rule to import things into the Photos app if they are an image or a movie. And there's a device make field set for a camera manufacturer. 
So that he said the device make field is important because otherwise you pull in things like Apple Watch emoji and things like that. So there's a link in the show notes. But if you tend to get, um, if people send you photos uh, via SMS or iMessage and you want to be able to save those, this is a this is an automated way to be able to do it. I thought this was really clever. Um, so it's worth checking this out, even if you don't want to do it, just to see how he did it, because uh, you may find some use for capturing photos in another context. Yeah. Um, Keith wrote in with a, a device I had not heard of. I don't know how this one fell off my radar, but the Wemo Maker to control the garage. And I guess, do you want to cover this or should I, since you're the, the resident expert on garage automation? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert, but it's something I'm very interested in. So we all know Wemo makes a, a line of home automation devices, but they've also created a new device called the Wemo Maker, which is kind of a create your own switch type device. And so it's, it's for the more technically inclined, which is why I think it would be interesting uh, for our audience. Um, and so Keith wrote in and said that he is blind so that these devices that allow you to watch a video feed, which is what I currently do to see if your garage door is up or down, doesn't work for him. He needed an alternative that worked with voiceover so that he could see if his door or so that he could be able to know if his door was up or down. And so what the Wemo Maker is, is it's a device that has a switch and a sensor built into one box. So he was able to, co- to connect that switch to his garage door. Now it takes some configuration because the idea is you can connect it, you can make it in to whatever you want. Um, but once he did, he was able to see through the Wemo app what the state of that switch is, and he configured it with his garage door to see is the garage door open or closed. And because the Wemos are Wi-Fi devices, he could pull it every 30 seconds uh, to see, uh, and he uses a, uh, a open source project called Wemoix, I, I don't know, oh boy, O-U-I-M-A-U-X, uh, that allows him to run Wemo commands from his Mac. I'll look for that and put a link in the show notes. Uh, and then run Python script and keyboard maestro to pull the maker every 30 seconds to see, is that is the door up? Is the door down? Is the door up? Is the door down? And if it changes state, he's going to get a notification via growl. Um, and if he's on his iOS device, he's going to get a notification using Prowl. And he's also able to automate this using Keyboard Maestro. And he's got Keyboard Maestro set to check it at 9 p.m. and at 1 a.m. every day to make sure if the door is open to close it. How cool is that? I mean, it's pretty cool. So WeMix, I guess is what it's we mix, pronounced. WeMix? Okay. Yeah. It's an open source Wemo control project. And uh, I've just found it. I'll put it a link in the show notes. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty, you can do that. But the Wemo maker is, it's kind of a, you know, cause, cause they usually, the Wemos are very consumer facing this thing. You can really hack. And, um, I've got, you know, I've got it on my list where I haven't bought one yet. I just want to see if, do I really miss it? Is this something I really want to get into? But I could see myself spending a day fiddling with one of these things. If I, if I went that way. Yeah. Now, if if you don't want something quite so high tech, although I think this would be fun to play with, um, Chamberlain has a garage door. Uh, it will open and close it for you. And it's it's kind of a consumer based product. It's, you know, kind of a, a solution that you just buy off the shelf. So that's I put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about it on the show, but, the, you know, the, uh, the home kit stuff is starting to show up now. So in. Uh, 2014 at WWDC, Apple announced HomeKit and how they were going to make all these big changes. And um, it took a while for the hardware manufacturers to catch up. But now there are HomeKit friendly devices hitting the market where these are 
automation devices that that are um, working with the Apple HomeKit frameworks. I guess one of the big hangups, I was talking to some of the developers of a WWDC, is Apple is insisting that these be secure connections. I mean, one of the Thankfully. downsides, you know, well, one of the downsides of, of the first generation of this stuff is it's not secure connection. So people driving down the street can start flipping your lights off and on and things that, you know, you don't necessarily want to have happen. So uh, Apple kind of upped the security game. And as a result, some of the early adopters like me are probably going to have to buy like new base units for some of the devices. Like I know that the uh, Hue lights are going to support HomeKit, but I also am under the impression that I'm going to have to buy a new base station, you know, the the device you plug into your network because they need to add the security piece to it. Uh, but anyway, so these are starting to hit the market now. And with iOS 9, it's going to be Siri friendly. And uh, I'm really happy to see kind of a consolidation of these home automation devices into one app or one interface. Because that's one thing I don't like about it is I have a whole folder full of apps for the various things I've been trying. And uh, I'm glad to see that this thing is starting to get a little more centralized. Haven't bought any of them yet. Have you played with any of this stuff yet, Katie? I don't have any HomeKit enabled apps yet. I, I know it's coming from yeah. Wemo, though. Yeah. The uh, the other thing, I think the other penny to drop on all this is the new Apple TV. I mean, there are tons of rumors out there. I know we don't generally do rumors, but this one seems like there's a lot of foundation to it that the new Apple TV is going to be HomeKit friendly and maybe act as maybe a hub for you. And um, and they didn't, they, you know, it was strangely absent from the WWDC presentation as the Apple TV. So it, it, my guess is whenever they announce that, that we're going to get a whole bunch more information. So I'm, I'm kind of sitting tight right now, but I've got enough invested in the Hue lights that I'll, I'll definitely buy a new hub when that comes out. Okay, well, listen, we're already at an hour and a half. Maybe we should uh, cut it off there. We've got some more topics to talk about. We'll move those to next month. Um, but uh, let's talk about um, the tech we're playing with. Uh, but we've got some cool new tech both of us want to talk about. But before we do that, why don't I do the final sponsor? Okay. And that would be our friends over at Fujitsu. We talked earlier about, you know, tearing the spines off books with saws and other dangerous things. Uh, but what we didn't talk about is what do you do with that paper after you've you've done it? Well, I know for me, it comes upstairs and goes to my Fujitsu IX500. Um, the Fujitsu AX500 is my favorite scanner. It's full duplex, which means it's got scanners on both the front and the back. So when I put a page through, it's the front and the back with one pass. It's got a sheet here that can hold up to 50 pages, and it just zips through that stuff. It connects wirelessly, but it also has a USB 3.0 connection. So I have mine just connected directly into my iMac and at home does 25 pages per minute and it can scan. Like I said, it can scan directly to mobile devices. But when you put that book in there and you push the button, it flies through it. So I've been going through cookbooks recently and some of my old legal texts. And as it's going through that, the Fujitsu not only scans it in, it also applies the optical character recognition. So everything is entirely searchable. So if I want to search through you know, for fire roasted pasta through all my cookbooks, I can do it. And it's going to find those words together. It's got an advanced paper system um, that allows it as it goes through it, it actually pings it with kind of a sonar to make sure it didn't get two pages. And it's got a separation roller technology to minimize jams and multi feeds. And it's just got a great software package attached to it. They really support the Mac. So when you put your book in there, you're going to flip through it. It really takes no time at all. In fact, once you get the spine cut off your books, whether you're doing it with your dangerous bandsaw at home or going to somebody and having them do it for you, 
you're going to be shocked at how quickly you can scan all those old books into your computer, have them fully accessible on all your devices, and um, with a, something like the Fujitsu Scan Snap. So check it out. It's the iX500 is my favorite. If you want something more portable, I'd recommend the S1300i. Um, which is does 12 pages per minute. It's also um, has a lot of the other benefits of the iX500, but it's more portable. You can fit it in a desk. And if you want something really portable, go with something like the iX100, which is almost like a wand. You could put it in your bag and carry it around and it's USB powered. Either way, if you're going to get a scanner, I recommend Fujitsu. They've sponsored the show for many years, but I've been buying their products long before that. And I will continue to buy them long after the Mac Power Users is not around. Um, it's just a great um, device and uh, something I highly recommend. I hear about it on Twitter all the time from listeners who finally get one. They say, I wish I had done it sooner. Uh, don't wait. Go get yourself one. Check it out. Uh, go to www.ez.com slash SSMPU. So that's ScanSnap at MPU at easy.com. Uh, if you buy it from a, some other source, uh, do me a favor and go check it out. Uh, let them know on Twitter or something that you heard about it from us. We really appreciate that. So everybody, um, go ahead and get yourself a brand new Fujitsu ScanSnap. You're going to love it. And let's move on to talk about our last topic. Okay, I think we just lost Katie. Let's no, no, I'm time. still here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the, the background noise just ended. I don't know what you did. Yeah, I got rid of the background noise. Okay, so 127. Sorry for the interruption. I'll let me write that down. No, it's fine. We're good. Okay, so let's talk about tech we're playing with. Um, I'm going to talk about something that um, uh, isn't available yet, in you know, like like I like to do. Um, so I, I loaded iOS 9 on my iPad and on my, my laptop. I'm sorry, iOS 9 on my laptop and I, uh, Mac 10.11 uh, El Capitan on my laptop. You know what I'm really shocked about with this new version is Notes. I always thought Notes was something that, you know, Apple just didn't care about. And the new Notes app and the both on the Mac and the iOS is really something. I, I don't know that I'm going to necessarily use it, but I'm playing with it. And uh, for those of you out there that are in the beta program, I encourage you to do as well. And we're going to talk about this when these products uh, release in the fall. But, um, you know, it's really quite remarkable how much better it is than it was before. In, in what way? How, how are you using notes differently now? Do you think it's going to replace? I mean, I, I know how it's different. I watched the keynote. But do you think it's going to replace some of your third party apps? Well, I, I'm not fully invested in Evernote like you are. so. Um, uh, it has an advantage in that you can put pictures and images and things in it. Uh, it's very friendly for creating bullets and lists and things like that. Um, I like the San Francisco font. So the typography looks nice and the app in itself is built better. The synchronization is much faster and it seems more reliable than it was ever before. And looking into it, um, they've switched the sync because they, they were using IMAP before, which really didn't make sense for the kind of stuff they're doing. Now it's not on IMAP. So the sync's better. Um, now, the, the big question is, because I spent last year going over all these notes apps and ultimately went back to NVLT. Um, the big question is, do I want to put notes in something like NVLT that's plain text or do I want to use something that's rich text? And there's advantages and disadvantages to both. And I don't really know where I fall with that. I mean, one of the things that's missing in notes is tagging, which, and I've been using tagging in VL for a while, but you can have separate folders, which kind of works as a tag, but not really. So there's advantages and disadvantages, but the thing that's interesting and I'd like to share with the listeners is 
the Apple native apps like Notes have really improved and they've obviously devote, uh, devoted significant resources to trying to make this a better application. And um, I don't know where I'm going to fall in that right now. I'm trying it out as I go through the betas. And by the time the product releases, hopefully I'll have a more definitive advice for the listeners. But for now, I can tell you it's not something that's an immediate write-off. Right. Well, my concern and maybe it's just not intended for this is it's, I don't think it's going to be an Evernote replacement. I don't think it's going to be an NV alt replacement is because is it really going to hold up to hundreds or thousands of notes? My guess is, I mean, right now organization in the notes app is just a list. You've got a list of all of your notes. Is it any different? I mean, what happens when you get beyond a dozen or even a couple of dozen notes? Does it just fall apart? Yeah. Well, the, the answers for that is, in the current betas, I mean, and obviously things can change is it's, it's got a folder system. So like what I've been playing with, is like, I've got some of the legal stuff. I've got like forms and matter notes and different folders, which kind of replace tags, which I'm using in VAlt, um, which is one way to kind of cull the herd. And the other thing is it's got a, a powerful search. You type in anything and it searches it out for you pretty quickly. Now, what I haven't done, I will, I'm just testing it. Like I said, I'm not replacing in at this point, but I've only got like 20 notes in it. So what I want to do before the product releases is I'm going to throw like 200 notes at it and, you know, get a lot in there and then see how it, how it plays. Uh, even if it handles that stuff well, I'm still not sure because I really like plain text. I, I just like the idea of plain text, but I also like the notes looking nice and I like the typography and, and the fact is with uh, iOS, getting data into the notes app is really simple because, you know, Apple's, it's they Apple's operating it system. Yeah. Exactly. So there's some advantages to it. So I, I don't really know where this all plays out yet, except like I said, um, the thing that's got me the most excited in the last month, which I never would have guessed is Apple's notes app. So uh, there it is, gang, take it for what it will. Now you actually have something that we can buy that you want to talk about. Yeah, but I, I do want to say, David, I just want to caution people. iOS 9 is a beta and it's about to be a public beta in the near future. They've they've mentioned that the public beta is going to come out in July. This is a beta and you're going to find things that don't work. You're going to find that your apps don't work and don't go running screaming to your developers. If you want to provide some constructive feedback, that's certainly one thing, but don't go running screaming to your developers that your apps don't work. Don't put anything mission critical on the beta that doesn't work. Most people should not sign up for the iOS 9 beta. You should probably not sign up for the iOS 9 beta. If if you're going to, you just need to understand what's in, involved in that. You certainly should not pan any developer or any application because their app crashes or has problems during the beta period. That's what the beta period is for. Yeah, we have this discussion every year, and I don't think our audience really does that Ours too much. Ours probably doesn't, but yeah. But uh, you're right. I mean, when there you are people beta, every year who do, though. Yeah, I, I've got things that have broken on me with the beta. Like, for instance, I talked about earlier about um, mail tags because mail tag, you know, mail plugins always break when you do a software update, and it takes the developers have to go in and do some things. And mail tags is going to have a beta shortly for you know the people that are trying ten point eleven, but. Um, it you know it, whatever it is that you use your you, something is not going to work when you try a beta and but i i like to use them because i like to write about them. like i want to have some time with this stuff so when it does release and we do that ios 9 show i'm not talking with two days notice i'm going to have right. used a couple months 
And, but even then it's not on my phone, you know, it's, it's on my iPad, which I can, if things break on that, I can afford to work around it. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you're interested into that stuff, I, I would encourage you not to use it on your primary devices you're using to get work done because there, there will be apps that don't work. Uh, but the notes looks interesting and I, I'm really curious to see, you know, how that all plays out. Um, Katie though, in, in the notes, you have something else different and I, I actually really want to hear about this. Okay. So I have a device that you can actually go out and buy. Uh, I, you know, I'm always interested in, in home automation and I went out and purchased the ring doorbell. It was one of these stack social specials. Uh, it's, it's $200. You can go out and buy it. Um, I think I paid about that, but I, I got, uh, some free cloud storage. So that was, that was the special that they were running, but let's talk a little bit about what it is. It is an internet connected doorbell with a, with a built-in webcam and it's, a little bit hokey looking, but in but it's it's probably some of the better looking of the internet connected doorbells. It's it's not totally obscene looking in terms of you you wouldn't be your your family probably wouldn't be totally embarrassed, David, if you wanted to put this outside on the door. Um, but you you replace your existing doorbell with this, and when when somebody walks up and pushes the doorbell button, um, it buzzes or notifies you on your your iPhone. Um, it also buzzes me on my wrist if if I've got that enabled. And I can see, okay, there's someone at my house and it gives me the option to initiate a video conference with them. So I can actually see who's at the door and, um, and converse with them if I want to. I haven't actually done that because I think that would be a little weird. The, the main reason I bought it is because I occasionally get packages delivered at my house that I don't know when they're coming. Um, I try to have my packages delivered at the office, but there have been some issues with that. And unfortunately, I've had a case, I've had a couple of situations where packages have sit outside my front door for days because I didn't know that they were there. And a few cases where packages have ended up being you know, taken off my front door. So it's important. I wanted it because I wanted to know when somebody was at my front door, um, when somebody had been at my house, and particularly for package delivery. And this does that. So when someone rings my doorbell, I get a notification. I can see who was there. If you buy their optional cloud service, which I'm using for free net right now, I'm not sure whether I'll actually buy it when it comes time to do that because it's like 30 bucks a year. You can you can get a video recording. It will store in the cloud a video recording of who's been there. And so far, everything that I've talked about seems to work pretty well. Um, what doesn't work all that well is it's it's still an early days product. Um, it, you know, they, they, they have this motion alert that's a fairly new system where it's supposed to give you a notification and turn on the camera if there's motion in your yard and you're supposed to be able to tweak it um, so that you're not getting false positives. I'm getting a ton of false positives with that to the point where I actually turned it off. So the motion alert was was pretty useless. Unfortunately, my mail carrier never rings the doorbell. I just put the package up. So um, that's a problem. I'll probably look at having to turn it back on. Um, and unfortunately, you can't at this point, although Ring says they're working on it, you can't just turn the camera on. So if I'm sitting at my desk at the office and I want to turn the camera on and see what's going on outside my house, I can't do it unless somebody actually pushes the button. And that seems a little little weird to me so that seems obvious that it should support that you know when you i would just assume that you could do that yeah they say that's coming but it hasn't come yet i don't know why um it 
suppose I, I'm not real clear from their documentation. I think it, it charges up via battery. It's I think it might siphon a little bit of power uh, if you've got it wired in, but it's supposed to last for about a year before you charge it up via USB again. It has these security screws, which is just code for these proprietary screws at the bottom of it that keep it screwed to your door, um, kind of to keep people just from ripping it off your door. Uh, my biggest fear with that is, great, am I going to lose that special screwdriver so I'm not going to be able to take it off the door when I need to recharge it. But um, over, overall, I've been pretty happy with it. It solves the problem I wanted, which is I wanted to know when the UPS or FedEx guy came, you know, so that I, I know that I needed to go to my door and check a package. Yeah, see, I, I'm interested in stuff like that. I, I, I want to wait a little bit longer to see how HomeKit kind of settles out before I do anything further. Yeah, but- I, I will say this particular product is early days. Um, it It's not quite as well as advertised i'm i'm probably 60 to 70 percent happy with it that's not very much well okay maybe 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 more maybe maybe closer to 70 percent happy with it yeah well i like the idea of being able to remote monitor cameras you know we we have um i talked about my um my canary in a prior show and like when we were on vacation a couple times we had people coming over the house to help fix things or take you know feed the fish or whatever and um and we would get the notification on our phone in Hawaii and you'd push the button and you'd see our friends coming in the house to do whatever they were doing. It was really kind of reassuring to know that if someone is in our house, we're going to get a notification and, and, and footage of it. So uh, now how do you deal with the privacy issue with the canary? I don't like the idea of a camera on in my house when I'm home. Uh, you know, it doesn't bother me. I mean, where, where it's located in the house is not in the bedroom. It's uh, just kind of in a central location where it covers the kitchen and the doors. Um, I don't know. I just don't care. I don't do anything in my house. I really, I, you would see me walking around a lot, you know, listening to Miles Davis and looking at my laptop for hours on end. So it wouldn't be that exciting. Okay. Cause I know, um, I know some of those have, have developed like privacy shields or things like that, but yeah, well the canary does too. And it's like, as I understand it, actually I did, I didn't really prepare notes to talk about it today, but the, um, it, it's motion related. So I guess whenever I do motion, it, 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 you know, the, it, it, it's almost like a big if this then that rule. So every one of our phones has the app on it, and it knows of the four of us, and it arms itself when none of our phones are in the house. So if we all leave the house, then it essentially arms itself, and then when it detects motion and none of our phones are in the house, so when, so when it's essentially armed, then it sends a notification out and gives us video. It doesn't do that if there's any phone in the house that belongs to one of us. That's the way we kind of have it configured. Um, however, I can remotely go if I want and turn it on and, and see what's going on. So I guess it's, I don't know if it's broadcasting to the internet at all times or, or only when I ask it to. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's probably about going to wrap us up for today. Okay. Uh, another month went by. We're going to have the, the next live show, like Katie said, on July 25th, not the first Saturday of August, like normal. Uh, but so get your notes into us uh, hashtag AskMPU send us a audio recording whatever it is you know carrier pigeon we don't care send it in we want to hear from you uh, everybody have a great week and uh, we'll see you soon yeah thanks to our sponsors this week Screencast Online Gazelle OmniFocus or Omni Group rather uh, and Fujitsu and uh, see you next week